0: All right, we have had a wonderful time together. Mark has done a great job. The message last night really is a classic message. You need, if you took notes or if you didn't, it wouldn't be hard to go back and walk through that message last night because it was so logical, it was so biblical, it was so helpful. If you didn't write it down last night, you need to get together with somebody and just sit and write all those main uh, points out seeking those things, setting our affection on things above. What are those things? As he said, if we don't know what those things are, how can you set your affection on something you know nothing about? So what a great message. My goal has been to, to come and try to support What is being said at night? You know, you get going in a lot of different theological directions and it can get confusing or maybe at at worst distracting to you. So I want to do something this morning and I want to preach on something that uh, I think will complement what we heard last night. Now, if it doesn't, don't tell me. Just make me feel good. I'm an old person. Just make me feel good and look at me and pat me on the back and smile, all right? Do something like that. And say, oh, Brother Grace, that was so good. We're so sort of glad that you're here and we can't wait till you leave. Something like that, all right? <laughs> now, uh, I don't have a PowerPoint. Honestly, I, I have sermons that I brought with me But my goal is to try to help and support the camp. So I really don't have anything written on a piece of paper other than the paper in my Bible right now. But um, the message I'm going to share with you uh, is something that I've preached before. Most of you do not uh, know me. There's some people from KCBT, and we're going back 20 years. And I know you. I've been looking at you. You forgot everything you knew 20 years ago. You're (laughs) as old as I am or older so, I'm not worried about you remembering this message, but this is a, this is a mess. Sorry, it's true. Uh, I told you I took that monster shake this morning, but, so I'll probably say some things that I'll have to apologize about later on. But the message that I want to bring this morning is something that there are some sermons, and those of you that have preached any number of times, they just kind of stick with you, they become life sermons. They're reference points. They're things that you yourself use or review regularly to check yourself out. The message we heard last night is certainly one of those messages. You can go back over that and over that to check yourself out and make sure that your relationship is right with God. Set your affection on things above, and you should be able to come up with four things that are above and focus on them. And... Um, Again, everybody makes decisions, as we said yesterday morning. You made a decision on what you heard last night. Maybe you didn't come forward. Maybe you didn't discuss it with anyone else. But we all made decisions on what we heard last night. And as I said, that was a great message. I want you to open your Bible to the Old Testament. We've spent some time now in the New Testament, but there is another part of the Bible. In fact, three-quarters of the Bible is the Old Testament, That's uh, where Genesis is found. That's the first book in the Bible. That's where we read about, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We read about Adam and Eve, and we read about their boys, Cain and Abel. We read about Enoch. Enoch was mentioned last night, Genesis chapter 5. Then we're introduced to Noah in the flood in chapter number 6. Then we're introduced, uh, and I'm going to kind of run through here a little bit, Uh, more quickly, the Tower of Babel. You remember that a little bit later on? And then at the end of chapter 11 in Genesis, we're introduced to one of the major figures in the Old Testament, not that the others weren't, but to a man named Abraham. And then we read about he he and his wife, and we read about Isaac and his wife, and we read about Jacob and his wives. We read about uh, uh, Rachel and Leah. And then we read about uh, a man named Joseph. And he takes up about maybe the last 13 chapters, 14 chapters in the book of Genesis. And that's just a quick survey of that. Well, we know by the time we get to the end of the book of Genesis that the children of Israel are down in Egypt. Now, they didn't go there to, for a long vacation, but they ended up spending about 400 years in Egypt. They grew. They multiplied. They multiplied over and over, to the point that they became a threat to the Egyptians themselves. Apparently, they were outpopulating the Egyptians. Things like that are happening in the world today. Some of the Islamic people, they move into Dearborn, Michigan, where people have one child per person, ZPG, you know, we're not going to grow. And then they come in and have 10 children. And it doesn't take long, and in a couple generations, they... Outpopulate the people of Dearborn, Michigan, and then the mayor is Islamic and uh, the, the you know the county seat is run by Islamic people. Well, that stuff works anywhere in the world. And uh, not that it was done necessarily intentionally in Egypt, but now they're outpopulating the Egyptian people. It doesn't say that specifically, but to the degree they were populating it where they were a threat to the Egyptian people. Well, they were brought into bondage to control them. And then God chose a man named Moses. That's where he comes in, at the beginning of the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. And Moses is chosen to be the leader to take the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt to the promised land. God had promised the children of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God had promised them that they would have a specific land that God had a land flowing with milk and honey for them. So now Moses becomes the, cho- the chosen leader to take the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt and to march them over into the promised land. So that takes us through the book of Exodus. The Ten Commandments are given there. We get instructions for the tabernacle at the end of the book of Exodus. We get into the book of Leviticus, and that's the worship book of the Jews. We get into the book of Numbers, and in the book of Numbers, uh, we read about the wilderness wanderings and all of the crazy things that took place, some unusual things and miraculous things that took place while the children of Israel, unfortunately, spent 40 years wandering on their way to the promised land. Of course, that wasn't God's intention. That wasn't plan A, but it happened because of their disobedience. So we come to the end of the book of Numbers, and we come to a book, the fifth book in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. And I want you just to open to chapter number one, if you would. We're going to get a little bit of background to what we're going to say. So Deuteronomy chapter number one, I'm reading right in verse number one. It says, these be the words which Moses spake unto all Israel on this side of Jordan. This is before they crossed Jordan to go into the promised land. In the wilderness, in the plain, over against the Red Sea, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what we're reading here in the book of Deuteronomy is a collection of three sermons that Moses preached to the children of Israel at the end of the wilderness wandering. About 30 days, uh, in fact, if you read through chapter number one, it's about 30 days before the the 40 years is up, Moses begins to address the children of Israel. Now remember that those that were 20 years old and older Earlier, many, many, 40 years before, they rejected God's plan and promised to go into the promised land. They didn't listen to uh, Joshua and Caleb, and consequently, the judgment that was levied on them was, you people are not going to go into the promised land. In fact, Moses himself is not going to go into the promised land. Nonetheless, they still had the responsibility to lead them through that wilderness and bring them to the point to prepare them to cross over. Now that's what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. Moses is preparing a new generation of people. The younger people who were under 20 years of age, 40 years before, he's preparing them to go into the promised land. And what the book of Deuteronomy is all about is Moses sharing with them All the things that God had given to Moses to teach the children of Israel to prepare them to go in and be obedient and be God's people in the promised land. Now, Moses doesn't want the same thing to happen to this group of people that happened to those that were his contemporaries 40 years before. So what he does in these three sermons in the book of Deuteronomy, he rehearses again. It's really what the name of uh, the book is all about. It's the law given again, Deuteronomy. So Moses is preaching to them, and he wants to remind them of what God told them 40 years before on their way into the promised land. Now, I've highlighted a lot of different things here, but let's go to chapter number 9. I I don't want to wear you out in the book of Deuteronomy before we get to my text. But let's get to uh, chapter number 9, and with that context established, notice verse 1. Hear, O Israel, thou art to pass over Jordan this day. Now, this day could be that actual day or it could be in this time. The word day is used in different ways in the scripture. But he says, thou art to pass over Jordan this day to go in to possess nations greater and mightier than thyself, cities great and fenced up. Now, he warns them. He says, now, you guys are not getting this land because you're a bunch of goody-goody two-jews. It's not because of your own righteousness. This is the mercy and the grace of God that I am giving you this blessed land. Notice verse 3. Understand, therefore, this day that the Lord thy God is he which go over before thee. Now, before they cross over, I want you to know you're going to have some battles going into the promised land. But I want you to know that God is going before you and he's going to give you victory. That's what verse three is all about. Verse four, speak not thou in thine heart after that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, when you go in there, in other words, I'm going to give you, God's going to give you victory, but don't walk around bragging on yourselves. You know why we have this precious piece of property that God has given to us? Because we are the finest. We are the bestest. We are the most wonderful people in all the world. We are a gift to God himself. He says, don't say that. Verse 4. Uh, don't say that you're going there for my righteousness, the Lord hath brought me into possess the land, but for the wickedness of these nations, lo- the Lord doth drive them out from before thee. Oftentimes, Uh, And I've been asked this question over the years, particularly by atheists. How come God was so mean in the Old Testament? What right did he have to give these children of Israel the right to go in and slaughter all of these people in the promised land? What kind of a God is that? Well, there is an answer to that question. Number one, God had made a promise all the way back to Abraham that he was going to give them that piece of property. Now, this was hundreds of years before. But notice in verse number four, it's not because you are righteous that you are going into the land or that I've given this to you. This is grace, but I'm driving the enemies out for this reason. Why did God Use the children of Israel to defeat those enemies in the promised land. Was he just being mean? Is he just bloodthirsty? The answer to the question is, but, verse 4, for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord doth drive them out from before thee. In other words, The Canaanites, the people that were in that that land, they were idolaters. They were as wicked as you could get. And God is going to cleanse the land, and like he has done many times in history, he uses a nation of people. He did it with Israel themselves when the Babylonians came in and cleansed the land of the Israelites. He is going to use the Israelites To cleanse the promised land of all of the wickedness. And then they will take possession of that land, and that is the piece of property that God has promised all the way back to their great, 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 great grandfather Abraham. I'm just establishing a little bit of context of what this is all about. How many of you read the first 10 chapters of the book of Deuteronomy this morning? Would you raise your hand? I'm the only one in the room that did. I'm not bragging on that because I'm the one that has to preach, and I had to go back and reestablish in my own mind the context of what I was preaching on this morning. But many people in here may have never even read the book of Deuteronomy. The name is a little scary in and of itself, isn't it? What does that mean? You know, dromedary. Isn't that a camel or something like that? No. <laughs> Deuteronomy is a book of the Bible, and it means the law given again prior to the entrance into the land of Canaan. Now, There's more I could say, but let's go to chapter 10. And this is where I will draw my message from. In verse 10, verse 1, we read, At that time, the Lord said unto me... Now, Moses is rehearsing history of what happened back in the wilderness. Remember, the Ten Commandments was given in the book of Exodus. Moses went up on Sinai. He came down. The people rose up to play. Exodus chapter 32. Moses took the tables Of uh, stone, he broke them, and there's a whole story that surrounds all of that. And that's what he's referencing now. He's saying, Remember back then, let's not make the same mistakes we made before. Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first. And come up unto me into the mount. He's rehearsing Exodus chapter, uh, the the chapters in the 30s, 28 through 30, in the book of Exodus of what happened back there. And I'll write on the tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest. So God tells Moses, let's try that again. You know, We're a little hasty there, breaking the tables. I'm going to give you another set. So now we get uh, two originals. Did you ever think of that? Where's the original? Well, there were two originals, if you're talking about the Bible, in this particular case. There was an original original, and then there was another original, because the first original got destroyed. Now, think about that in the, in, in the realm of biblical uh, translations and the original languages, all that. There are two originals in this particular place. Tell that to your seminary professor and see what he has to say about that. He'll love that. Anyway, let's go down to verse number eight. At that time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister. Again, he's rehearsing all of this stuff that they had um, made a mess out of the first time 40 years before. Levi hath no part in the inheritance because the Lord's his inheritance. Verse number nine, this is where I'm going. Verse number 12, let's go there. and We're only gonna look at two more verses here, essentially, two more verses These two verses are important because there's a question that is asked here. And the question, in answer to the question, really goes along. It's not contradictory. It's only complementary to what was said last night in the message. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? Now, there's a good question. What does God require of you? There's a that's a simple question and there's a simple answer that's given. But I want you to go to the end of verse number 13, if you will, because the question mark shows up at the end of that verse. It says, "What does the Lord thy God require of thee? And notice the last words in verse 13 for thy good. God never requires anything of you or from you that isn't for your good. Amen. Romans eight twenty eight in the New Testament, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. I don't care what God puts on you in your life. And this is something as a young Christian, you need to understand and begin to live because difficult times come into every person's life. God isn't trying to get even with you or just test you to see how tough you are or how spiritual you are. Everybody has trials and tribulations in life, some more than others. There's some trials and tribulations that I know friends of mine have gone through. I hope I never have to go through in my life, but I still have to go back to Romans chapter 8, And Romans chapter 8, verse 29, not just 28, that God brings all of these things into our lives that we might be conformed to the image of his son. Remember, Jesus' life wasn't all that easy toward the end. You know, like the scourging and the crucifixion, those were a couple bad days in Jesus' life. You may have a couple bad days in your life also, but the trials and tribulations and temptations of life always pass through the hand of God and they are allowed to come into your life to help you to, to be a better person, uh, pro- Very uh, possibly and probably, but ultimately good will come out of that. I can think even in the context of this meeting here, I can think in my own church and in some of your churches and going back to KCBT, I can think of some tough times. I got really close to a lot of people in KCBT since since 1977. So I've gone through some of the tough times at KCBT with the people there as a friend. And you know what? I can honestly say, and listen to me, if you regret some things of the past and you're having problems with what has happened in years gone by and all that, and maybe you've got a grudge or you've got a bitterness against somebody else or some other church or some other group of people from another church, let me just tell you this: Good can come out of the most wicked and vile things. Only God can take a horrible situation and turn it around for good. I look at all of these people here. All of the people that have been here uh, through these days of our camp and I am overwhelmed at the goodness and the grace of God, how God has worked through you and through your pastors and your people to bring about what I'm having the privilege to be part of right here. This camp, what a blessing it is. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So get rid of your bitterness. Get over the problems of the past. Forgive whoever you need to forgive and sense forgiveness from others. And let's move on and see what God has for us in the future. By the way, I know at least four things I'm looking forward to. I was listening to the sermon last night. Remember? (laughs) Set your affection on things above. That's where we're going. Those are the good things. Now, what does the Lord thy God require of thee for thy good? for that good. My mother would say that all the time. You know, we'd be eating dinner, and she'd put these green things on my plate. You know, I remember that. It's just green stuff. What is this green stuff? And it might be broccoli. It might be spinach. Oh, God, help us. It could be asparagus. It could be stuff like that. You know, and she'd put it on the plate, and I'd look at that. There's just something unattractive about that stuff. There just was. Maybe it was the taste. Probably the taste that was unattractive about that. I didn't understand the miracle of butter back in those days and and salt. I mean, you can put butter and salt on anything. It'll taste pretty good. You know, I don't care what it is. So, but I didn't understand the miracle of all that. And I'd be sitting there at the dinner table and my mother would say, you need to eat everything that's on your plate, everything that's on your plate. It's good for you. It's good for you. It just didn't taste all that good for me, you know. I didn't see miraculous things happening if I put asparagus in my mouth or anything like that. I just, I I wasn't a believer. I just thought, I just wasn't. She didn't convince me, she didn't convert me to that. I got converted many, many years later when I found the miracle of butter and salt. And I could find out that everything can taste good if you put enough butter and salt on it. Maybe a little garlic too, that might help. Well, anyway. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? Now, the question ends at the end of verse 13, but the answer is given in between in the next few words that follow, what does the Lord thy God require of thee? I like to keep things simple. What Mark did last night is he took something that many people, I imagine, sit and went, uh, when he asked the question two nights ago, and he said, well, what are you what are you setting your affection on in heaven? Probably many of us in here sat and thought, gee, you know, he's got a point. I'm not really sure. What, what do I love in heaven that would cause me to set my affection there and forget about my clothes and my car and my cradle and all of this different <laughs> stuff? What? What is there that would cause me to forget what is down here and really focus in on that? Amen. I listen. I listen. I came here to learn. I didn't come here just to to share some thoughts with you in the morning. I came here to learn, and I'm learning. I'm going to walk away better than when I came in, and God knows my wife is glad about that. So anyway, what does God require? There's five things in this list. Five things in this list. And you can see some correlation to much of what Mark said last night. Now, really, uh, uh, this particular text starts a little bit before where Mark started last night. It says this. It says in verse number 12, it says, But to, here's the answer to the question what does God require of me for my, to fear the Lord, to fear God? That's what he requires of me. Now, what does that mean, to fear the Lord? Does that mean that I walk around, you know, looking over my shoulder, waiting for lightning to strike me because I'm stepping out of line morally in some way? Well, I'm not going to tell you that that's not a a good thing to do from time to time, but I think there's a whole lot more. Fearing the Lord means that you have, let me put it this way. This is probably the best way to explain it. That God says what he means and he means what he says, okay? you may have if you're young and younger in here you may still live at home and you have to listen to your mom and dad and uh, maybe you live with uh, some strong parents and they say what they mean and they mean what they say that was my father my father my father and my mother they were incredibly spiritual people now i know that some, some of you're going to object to this but my mother was a prophet now i grew up as a catholic and some of you Grew up as Catholics, and you're saying, boy, I never heard of Catholic prophets. Oh, you're going to hear about a Catholic prophet right now. My mother was a prophet. She used to do this. I'd get in trouble at home. I was the oldest of seven children. I'd get in trouble. And my mother's sister, mother, she was trying to take care of the babies. And I'd get in trouble. And my mother, instead of dealing with me, she would say this. She'd say, George, when your father gets home, you're going to get it. And she was right. <laughs> All the time. Every time. When my, wa- my mother went to my father and said, George did this and George did that, I got it, I got it. I got more than I thought I was going to get a lot of times, too. My mother, she was a prophet, or a prophetess, if that makes you feel better about that anyway. She was, a, she was a prophetess. Fear the Lord. I believe that God means what he says and says what he means. When you come to the Bible and read the Bible, you need to have an attitude that God says what he means. He's not playing games with us. He's not telling jokes. There may be things that are humorous in Scripture, but they're on top of a story that is a very, very serious story in Scripture. God says what he means and, and, and means what he says. So what does God require of me? He requires me to look at the Bible and believe what I say is true. And believe that God means what he says and says what he means. Let me move on to the second thing here. It says, and to walk in all of his ways. All right, walk in all of his ways. What does that mean? That means to live my life in in conformity to what God's expectations are for my life. Now, we understand this from a Christian's perspective today, and it's hard not to because of where we are living. But we are to, Paul said, to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we were called. We are to walk. Our walk is our life in how we uh, conduct ourselves in our life. My Christian walk is how I behave myself on a daily basis. How do I live my life? How do I deal with people? How do I deal with all of the elements that surround me? Friends, civil authorities, uh, um, my own family. How do I walk? Do I walk in a worthy way? So I'm I'm supposed to walk in all of his ways. Then it says, and this this was a big point that Mark made last night. Notice what the third thing is there. It says to walk in all of his ways and to love him. To love him. Why are to we why are we to set our affection on things above and what are the things above the things above are the Lord himself and ultimately the thing that God craves more than anything from all of us the first great the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart soul mind and strength Now love is number 3 in this list is this list sequential. I had to stop and think about that years ago. Is this sequential? And I certainly see a sequence in the order that these words or phrases are placed in these two verses. In other words, my relationship with God must start first with a sense of fear, that I believe that God says what he means and means what he says. Before I was ever saved and the fellow that witnessed to me where I worked in the secular world at Eastman Kodak Company, he began to share scripture verses with me. Actually, he opened the Bible. The first time I really looked at the Bible with uh, from this perspective as a person being evangelized was 1 John chapter 5, where it says, These things have I written unto you that believe upon the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Now, this fella set me up for that. He asked me this question. He said, Do you know for sure that when you die that you're going to go to heaven? And I said, No. I should have shut up right there, but I didn't. I'm a theologue, so I've got to answer the question. I've got to go a little deeper. I said, no, and nobody can know that. And he opened his New Testament ceremoniously. (laughs) And he said, read this verse. I didn't know what to say. I was dumbfounded. In my heart, and I know this now, the Holy Spirit said, That was a stupid answer on your part, wasn't it? (laughs) Look what it says right there. Of course, I didn't know anything about the Bible. I did, as a Catholic, believe the Bible was the Word of God. I just didn't read it. I trusted that the priest would tell me what it said, and it would be good enough for me that it would get me through. I had not read it for myself, and I had not read it to absorb it and personalize it. I read that verse, and I didn't know what to say. That shut me up. That was the end of my first encounter with this individual. I didn't get saved then, but I knew that I looked like a fool in front of him. I didn't have an answer. But it did make me think, you know, the next time, if he ever shows up again, I'm going to be ready for this guy. Well, (laughs) there's too much to know about the Bible to get ready for somebody. He showed up a week later, and I wasn't ready a week later. I was in trouble again. But this, I was just talking to him... In a, in a way where I was just kind of patronizing him. You know, uh, I'm going uh, to be polite. You go ahead, and you can tell me about whatever you do, but hopefully you will go away and leave me alone. That was what was going on in here. I figured if I listen to him and be polite, he can say what he wants, he can try to sell his pots and pans to me, whatever he's trying to do, and he will go away. He won't ring my doorbell again. Well, that's not true. He came back. Actually, he came back probably about six times he'd come back. And this is something that may be helpful for many people in here. This is what he did right. First of all, he used the word of God. But secondly, this is what he did. He didn't try to give me too much. He didn't come and try to, you know, do a systematic Uh, Allen theology with George Grace. He didn't say, Have you ever studied the doctrine of harmoniology? Have you ever done that? How about ecclesiology or eschatology? Let me tell you all I know about prophecy and what's going to happen. And then he didn't do that. He just said, You know, for sure, when you die, you're going to go to heaven. No, I don't know that, and no one could know that. Well, read this in the Bible. I read it, and that was the end of the lesson. That was the lesson. He didn't try to pound it into my head. He could sense where I was. I was ignorant in the Bible. This is not the time for him to go into an hour and a half teaching session about salvation. He just put a question in my mind and made me question what I thought or believed to be true. That was important. Don't try to give people too much Now, if you know you're only going to get one chance in a lifetime with a person, you may be tempted to do and may be wise to do more than that. But if this is a family member or somebody you work with or a neighbor or a friend, you don't have to tell them everything you know the first time you witness to them. Be sensible and logical about that. People who know little or nothing about the Bible, they only need a little to gag on. You understand that? They don't need a lot. They don't need a systematic theology. They just need a thought to make them stop and think about themselves in their own position. So, fear the Lord, walk in all of His ways. Well, I had I I got saved and things began to change in my own life. I believed what the Word of God said. And eventually I trusted Christ, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I accepted that at face value, I got saved, and I became, to walk, I became to the place where I began to walk in all of his ways. I tried to conform my life to what I was reading in the Bible, and I had to make some changes in my life. I didn't have somebody preaching down my throat all the time and say, you can't do this, and you better do that, and you're not, a... I didn't have anybody. i go to church, i listen to this sermon, but nobody beat me over the head with the Bible. But as long as I read the Bible, God spoke to me, and God talked to me, and God helped me to see who I was, where I was, and what I needed to do. And things began to change in my life. Began to walk in all of his ways. I liken this kind of to my relationship with my wife. You know, when you meet somebody, a human, let's put it in a human context. You meet somebody, you got an attraction to that person, and you, you think she's pretty as a man. You know, that's what I won't go into the gender thing. You know, we've got lots of problems today. But anyway, as a man, I like women. I've been attracted to women all my life. I've never been attracted to men. I think you guys are ugly. Fat, you stink, and I know what you're like because I'm just like you are. That's what I think. No attraction whatsoever there. But my wife is attracted to my wife. So I wanted to please my wife. So there is a sense, if I can use the term, of fear. I want to be careful what I say and what I do. I don't want to offend her. I want to get another date I want her to pick up the phone and talk to me again, and maybe we can carry on a relationship more than what we're doing now. So, you know, you know how it is. (laughs) You kind of tiptoe around the relationship, you don't want to make waves. You put on your best. You make sure you use underarm deodorant, guys, and <laughs> brush your teeth and all that stuff because you don't want her to think that you're, that you're really like what you are. You don't want her to know that. <laughs> and, then, and then what you do is you learn a little bit about her. In my case, I learned about her, and, you know, she likes this, and she liked to go there, and I found myself changing a lot of my own desires. Oh, yeah, I like that, too. Oh, yeah, I'd like to go there, too. You know, I'd like to do, well, I really would like to go to the opera. Oh, me, too. That's my favorite thing. I love the opera. Fancy that. What a coincidence. We both love the opera. But I'm changing. I'm walking in her ways. You know what I mean? And then one day, one day, 50 years ago, just about this time of year, maybe 51 years ago, I'd have to look at the calendar, but all of a sudden, one day I woke up and I said, you know, I think I love her. I don't believe it. love at first sight. Lust at first sight? Oh, yeah, many times. <laughs> many times. No problem. Love at first sight? Nah. Too much to get to know about a person before I'm going to fall in love with somebody. But I was in love. And obviously, f- f- you know, 49-plus years, almost 50 years ago, we got married. But there was a process there. And I said all that to say this. You have to read the word of God and believe it says what it means. It means what it says to come to a place where you begin to change and walk in all of his ways. And they may be seemingly difficult to you. I don't want to go to the opera. I don't want to do that. But I can sit through two hours of that just to be next to her. Okay? I can do that. So I can make some adjustments in what I like and what I do to be acceptable to her. I liken that to the Christian experience. I can make some adjustments in my life. I can do some things. I want to please God. Life isn't all about me. I can make some changes. And the longer you do that, listen, one of these days, you're going to wake up, and maybe you never have. I feel sorry for you. One of these days, you're going to wake up And you're going to be in love with God, with God. Now, I want you to know that love isn't at the top of the list there. Now, it's the goal, no doubt. And what was said last night was theologically correct. No question. Set your affection. God wants us to love him. But it doesn't start out that way. Any more than it starts out that way with someone of the opposite sex that you fall in love with. It's a process. It takes time for all of that to happen. And there are certain things that take place in your relationship with that person that brings you to the place where one day you wake up and you say, you know, I think I'm in love. Now the next thing on there is serve. Serve. Service comes out of love. We heard that last night. Service was the fourth thing, or ministry was the term that was used. Ministry comes out of our love relationship with God. Some of us get burnt out in the ministry. We get burnt out in church because we're just trying to please people. We're just trying to please someone else. Or maybe we're just trying to please ourselves. We want to be successful. We want people to recognize us. We want people to admire us for who we are and what we do in the church. We've got people that are coming to us and saying, well, what do you think? And what what would you do in this situation? And it feels pretty good. It kind of builds up your ego. And maybe that's why you do what you do. But what you do in God's work needs to be motivated by your love relationship with God. He says what he means and he means what he says. Now let's walk with him. Say, boy, some of this stuff is tough. This is a big change in my life. I don't know. Walk with him. And you walk long enough and I promise you one of these days you're gonna wake up and you're going to be in love. Now many people are trying to do service only out of fear, only out of fear. Oh, man, I'm, man, you know, if I don't go to church this Sunday, God will give me four flat tires, and, you know, I'll lose my job, my wife will leave me, and who knows? you got all these things in your mind that God's going to bring judgment on you if you do not do. Now, doing is important, but it isn't more important than loving. Doing should be the result or the product of your love relationship. That's true. Let's go back to the human relationship. I, I'm in love with my wife. So here comes. It's her birthday. What do I do? I go, man, Well, oh, this is great. It's my wife's birthday. It seems like she just had one, but it's, and now, but, but I need to, I need to find something that will really please her. I want to show her how much I love her. Now, not everybody serves God that way. Some people do this they go, Oh, no, it's my wife's birthday again. It seems like she just had a birthday. You know what? I know what I'm going to have to do. I got to get a card, I got to get a gift, I got to take her out to dinner, or I'll pay for it for the rest of the year. So I will go out, I'll go to the pharmacy, I'll get me a card, a good Hallmark card that costs at least eight dollars, I will get her a gift, I I will take her out to dinner to her favorite restaurant, of course, even though I hate the place myself, but I'll take her there and that way I'll get peace for another year, or at least until Christmas, or our anniversary, when I gotta buy her another gift. Oh, I'm so in love with my wife. i got to buy her another piece. i got to do something else for her. A lot of people serve the Lord with that attitude. Oh, it's Sunday morning. i got to go and i got to work in the nursery. I gotta, Oh, man. I'll tell you, those little brat kids. Why do, people, why do people have kids anyway? Why do they do that? Why don't the people that have kids go to the other church over there? I'm, I'm sick and tired of working with these kids. This is terrible. And, you know, how can I get out of my responsibility because I'm tired of serving? Because we don't serve out of love. We serve out of obligation. We're out of fear. I did that long enough as a Roman Catholic. I served. I did the things I did as a Roman Catholic because I was afraid of the immediate judgment of God in my life. That's a terrible way to live. Terrible way for a Christian to live, worrying about what's going to happen to me, what will God do to me if I'm not as faithful as I think I'm supposed to be. God says what he means, and he means what he says. Then I need to learn to walk in all of his ways. I may have to go to the opera. I may need to do some things to please God that, you know, it's not my thing, but I'll do it, because I want to please God. And then one day, you wake up. I'm in love. I'm in love with God. All this time, I've been saved for X amount of months, X amount of years but I've never had a relationship with God. Now I look forward to opening the book to see what God has for me every day. Now I look forward to times of prayer when I can get alone and I can meditate and I can just talk to God and say, God, talk to me. Tell me what I need to be, what I can do and who you are. Help me with all of that. Walk in all of his ways. I fall in love with him. Now I am prepared to serve I am ready to serve. I'm not going to get worn out on someone asking me to do something at church. I'm here at the disposal and at the service of the Creator of the universe, the Lord God Jehovah Almighty. That's why I'm here. And if nobody else likes that or recognizes that, so what? It doesn't mean anything to me here. I am here for Him solely. When you get there, you're going to have a very pleasant Christian life. Well, that's not where it ends here, though, does it? There's one more thing on the list. Let's go back and read it, and I'll be done. Chapter number 10, verse 12, it says, Fear the Lord, walk in his ways, love him, and serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul. And then there's one more thing. It's number 13, verse 13, to keep the commandments of the Lord. So I count that. That's number five. I am to fear the Lord. That is, I believe that he says what he means and means what he says. I am to walk in all of his ways. I am to conform my behaviors and my attitudes to his. I am to to try by the grace of God and with the help of the Holy Spirit of God in my life. I am to overcome my flesh And I am to submit myself and yield my instruments of instruments of righteousness to God. That's the way Paul put it in Romans chapter number six or seven, somewhere in there. And then when I do that, I'm going to fall in love. It's coming. If you're not there, it's coming. Stick with it. Stick with it. Don't give up. Ask for God's help. Help me, Lord. Help me to overcome these things that I'm struggling with. I want to love you. I know that's the right thing. I heard it last night, and I'm hearing it again this morning. That's where I need to be. I need to love you. So help me, Lord, to get there. Then I can serve. Then I can do what I do out of love. And then keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. Now, that sounds redundant, Isn't it the same thing as walking in all of his ways or fearing the Lord or one of those things or maybe all of those things? Isn't that keep the commandments thing, isn't that somewhat redundant? And I don't think so. Everybody in this room is in one of these places. You are at number one. You're still struggling with believing what God says. You're still struggling with that. You're still struggling in the word of God. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're just trying to come to the place where you have faith in Christ, repentance for sin and come to the place where you call upon the name of the Lord. You're struggling right there at number one. You don't believe that God says what he means or means what he says. You're not sure of that. But if you've come there, next step is, and some of you are here, you're still learning to walk. You're trying to walk, and you're struggling with things. Those are the kind of people that end up in pastor's offices all the time. They're struggling with their walk. They haven't come to the place where they've really fallen in love with God. They're struggling in their marriage. They're struggling at work. They're struggling with their family members. They're struggling with their finances. They're struggling. And the reason is, is because they're struggling with trying to walk in the ways of the Lord. And once you get by that, then... You fall in love. Some of you are there. It's not over, though. That's the starting point for your service, for what God has called you to do. Many people in this group here and people who have come with us have gone to the mission field. What does it take to go to the mission field? What does it take to take your family to Argentina, What does it take to take your family into the ministry like the pastors that are in here? What does it take? I can guarantee you that that individual or those individuals have come to a point of crisis in their life where they've had to say, is God and what God wants for me to do in my life more important or am I going to pursue my own desires and career? Everybody that's in the ministry, at least, on the mission field has come to that place when they had to walk away from another life to start a new one in the ministry. Now, maybe you just kind of folded it in. Maybe it worked out for you just to move from one very naturally into the next. But there was still a crisis point where you had to make a final decision. and I'm re- Am I ready to make that step? It's kind of like getting married, isn't it? Yeah, I love her, but I don't know if I love her that much. I don't know that I want to spend the rest of my life with her. But then when you do, buying cards is an act of love and service for your family member. It's not an obligation. It's not an obstacle to your happiness. It's not a drain on your pocketbook. It's an act of love and serving your mate, your husband, or serving your wife. And then you come To be a keeper. A keeper. How many of you, you know, lacrosse, soccer, hockey? You ever heard of a keeper? What's a keeper do? What's a keeper do? He's the goalie. He's a wacko. He's a wacko. He's crazy. Hockey goalies, they have to lose, they have to have lost their mind when they were 15 years old to be a hockey goalie. Keepers they will not allow the other they're not offensive they're defensive they will not in their minds allow their opponent to score on their team a good goalie can win the stanley cup because if the other team never scores you may eventually after six or seven periods one slips in you go out the hero and it was the goalie who wouldn't allow a goal to go in that really wins games like that. So you're a keeper. You're a keeper. You will not allow the enemy, the opposing team. Who's he? Our adversary, the devil. We are going to make sure that the devil is not going to have his will. He's not going to have his way. He's not going to have influence here. I'll do everything and probably the most important thing I can do is I can pray. Remember years ago at a hockey game. It was a long time ago. It's probably 30 years ago. I'm a hockey fan. I was at a hockey game. And this fella, and I remember his name. His name was Randy Cunningworth, and he played for the Pittsburgh Penguins later on and became a coach in the NHL and all this stuff. But he broke away, and he's going in a breakaway on this goalie from an opposing team in Rochester. And I remember if you played, if you played any uh, goaltending or know anything about it, that what you do is you try to come out and cut the angle down on, on the shot. So it's harder for the opponent to score on you. Well, I remember this goaltender coming out and here comes Randy Cunningworth. He's going 30 miles an hour. He's got that puck and he winds up. He had a wicked slap shot, wicked slap shot, 100 miles an hour. He winds up and he hits that and this goaltender is standing there and bam. (laughs) I'm okay. Don't call 911, I'm okay. This happens to me about once a week. That puck hit him in the head. He had a face mask on, but it hit him so hard, it literally knocked this goaltender off his feet and down. This is what's important, though. I remember. I remember this. I remember, you know, he was dazed there for a minute. And then he came to and he went like this. You know what he was doing? He wanted to see if the puck went in the net with blood pouring out his face. He was doing his job. He was protecting the goal. He was keeping the enemy from scoring against his team. That was his job. Not everybody's a keeper. Not every some of us are struggling with the fear part. Some of us are struggling with the walk part. Some of us are struggling with the love part. Some of us may be with the service. But once you get by the love, the service becomes easier and easier. Keepers, they're few and far between. There may be some keepers in here. Will you let the devil score on your team, your family, your church, your Sunday school class? Your pastor, the leadership in your church, will you let the devil score? Or will you do everything in your spiritual strength and power in imploring the throne of God, saying, God, protect us, protect us. We do not want Satan to score on our team. Protect us. Every church needs some keepers. Be a keeper. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Jesus is a keeper. He's a keeper. And there's many keepers over the history of the church that we've learned about, read about, that have been good models and examples to each one of us. Help us to take this simple, simple list of things. What does the Lord thy God require of thee? Let's make it easy. Lord, you require that we Believe what you say. You mean what you say, and you say what you mean. And Lord, it's imperative, it's important for us to begin to conduct ourselves in a way that is pleasing to you. It may be difficult on us, but Lord, we know that you'll be pleased. And Lord, that you'll give us the strength to do that. And then, Lord, one of these days, we'll fall in love with you. In our Christian lives, in some ways will seem to be get, getting easier and easier, and service will become a joy rather than a drudgery, rather than just an obligation, rather than something we signed up with. And then, Lord, maybe someday I'll be a keeper. I'll be that type of person that will pray, and Lord,